Amen. You may be seated. Wow, what a, what a privilege and honor it is to be in the house of the Lord this morning, isn't it? Just from the bottom of my heart, I often take this for granted, that we can come together, that we can worship the God who has saved us. We just sang in Christ alone, the wrath of God was satisfied, therefore, no guilt of life. No scheme of hell, no nothing can separate us from the God who saved us. What a privilege it is to worship that God. If you have your Bibles with you, would you open them with me to Acts chapter 12, verses 20 through 25. We have the uh, dubious honor this week, today, of finishing up the 12th chapter of Acts. So if you've been with us for any amount of time... You know that we've been going through Acts, and um, uh, Lori Alanis is here from uh, Mexico, and I know you didn't know that I was going to be picking you out, but you've been gone now for some time. We were in Acts when you left, right? It's been almost a year, and we're only a few chapters ahead now, so you, we're just right where you, close to where we were when you left. We're still going through Acts. Man, what, what amazing things we see, though, here in the book of Acts. Last week, if you were here with us, we saw that Herod was a really bad man, doing some really bad things, putting to death people who didn't deserve to be put to death. He was looking for Peter after Peter had escaped from prison. The angel of the Lord had brought Peter out of prison. Herod, because he's murderous, he's bloodthirsty, he puts to death the soldiers who had nothing to do. They were not responsible. They were not the culprits for the prisoner Peter being released. And yet, he still put them to death. And then he left this area of Judea to go to Caesarea. That's what we talked about last week. This week, what we're going to see is the pride of man leading to God's judgment. We're going to see what happens to a person when they are prideful against the Lord. And to get started this morning, let me tell you of uh, just one of the saddest stories I've heard in a long time. Uh, this, this past year, on December 14th, 2018, so we're just talking about a couple months ago, not that long ago, so in December of this last year, there was a Detroit man named Richard Phillips. He was freed from being incarcerated in a prison. And to make this case more specific and more unique, he had been wrongfully incarcerated. This is to say he was wrongfully imprisoned. Now that might not be something that's super unusual, We hate to hear about it, but we know that that's reality. With as much uh, people, as many people go through the judicial system, surely there are some who go to prison who don't deserve to go to prison. But this man, Mr. Richard Phillips, he has the honor, though I'm sure he would not like to hold this honor, of being the man who has been the longest tenure of being wrongfully imprisoned in the history of the United States. When he was released, he had been in prison for 45 years, wrongfully imprisoned. When we hear about that, this grips us, right? And it should. Because when we talk about justice, it's a deeply moral issue. And when we hear about justice 
that hasn't been served, right? This man, it was not justice for him to be imprisoned. He didn't do anything to deserve it. We rightfully hate that. And we say, we need to change this. That's not right. Because justice is a moral issue. So we hate it when somebody is wrongfully accused, but we celebrate when someone is rightly accused, right? Someone who does the crime does what? Does the time. We celebrate that because justice has been served. And what we're going to see this morning is that we should celebrate when we see God serving justice to a man who deserves it. But here's the catch. You and I are exactly like this man. And God, who was just in judging Herod, is going to be, hear this now, the same just, right, good God who's going to judge you and me if we're not in Christ. That's where we're going this morning. The pride of man, that's in all of us, seen especially here in Herod, leads to God's just judgment. That being said, let me read our verses here this morning, and then we'll jump into our uh, explanation of it. Acts chapter 12, verses 20 through the rest of the chapter, verse 25. Now he, this is Herod again, was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And with one accord, these people came to him. And having won over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they were asking for peace because their country was fed by the king's country. On an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. The people kept crying out, The voice of a god! And not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. As we consider God's word this morning, let's go to him in prayer. Father, we know that this endeavor that we are undertaking this morning, that is trying to know you through your word, is absolutely impossible for us to do outside of the work of the Holy Spirit. So Father, as we consider these few verses here in Acts chapter 12, Lord, will you illuminate our hearts? Will you speak to each one of us the truth of ourselves and at the same time the truth of Jesus, which takes away the pride of us. Father, please help us to seek you, to serve you, to obey you, to love you, and to follow you in all ways. In your name, amen. I have two main points this morning. If you're taking notes, this would be the best way to be thinking through the sermon. The first point that we're going to consider here at the very beginning is the pride of Herod. We're going to see the pride of Herod very clearly explained to us. And this is going to be the easiest part of the sermon to see. We're easily going to look and say, wow, what a bad man. We're going to see the pride of Herod. But then secondly, and this is where we're going to spend much, much more of our time on, this is really the theme of the sermon, is the pride of mankind. And that's what we're really going to focus on. First is going to be the pride of Herod, but then we're going to see the pride of mankind, which is to say that you and I are the same way. So first, let's consider the pride of Herod here in our 
text. If you're like me, you've many times in your life, you, you keep digging a ditch for yourself uh, when you shouldn't. That is to say, you kind of put your foot in the mouth, and when you should stop talking, when you should stop doing whatever you're doing, you just go double or nothing. You keep going. You keep talking. You keep digging yourself further and further into a hole. And that's what Herod's doing here. He's done horrible, terrible things. He's killed the apostle James. He imprisoned Peter, trying to put him to death. He killed the soldiers that Peter uh, that were watching over Peter. And then he ran away, as we talked about, to Caesarea. And here in verse 20, we see that Herod keeps digging this hole deeper for himself, for the condemnation of God is almost a Upon him. Notice what we're told in verses 20 and 21. We're told that there's a group of people from Tyre and Sidon who come to see Herod. Why are they coming to see Herod? Well, the beginning of verse 20 says he's very angry with them. Now, this is an unexplained reason why is Herod angry with these people. I don't really know, but that's not too big of a problem. Herod has a lot of issues here. He's a very selfish, arrogant, self-important man. So if someone doesn't do something that he thinks they should, it makes sense that he's angry with them. In fact, there's a bitter irony in verse 20 here that he's angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon because we've heard these two cities before in the New Testament. These specific cities were addressed by Jesus in Luke chapter 10 as two cities who were so wicked the judgment of God was about to befall them. So the irony here is Herod, who is about to be judged by God, I mean, he's on the cusp, he's on the brink of falling over the cliff into God's judgment, is angry with those who are really, really wicked. I mean, the irony is thick here. But he doesn't just stop there. He's angry with these people, these two cities, who uh, are wicked in and of themselves, but they're very shrewd, are they not? Verses 20 and 21 says, they join together in and of themselves, a big deal. They make a, uh, an agreement and, and here in verse 20, with this man Blastus, who's the king's chamberlain, he's one of the king's advisors, they make a treaty with him because they want peace. They're suffering. They don't have food, as we're going to see. They need Herod to be on their side, and so to get to Herod, they're going to kind of flank him by going through one of his trusted advisors. So they ask for peace. Look at on verse 21 then. In asking for peace... What do, well, what do, how does Herod respond? Well, on this specific day, verse 21 tells us, we see that Herod put on royal apparel, and then he got on the seat called the rostrum seat, which is to say the judgment seat, which maybe some of your translations have that. So he puts on these clothes, he sits on a judgment seat, and then he speaks to these pagan, wicked People. Two, two quick things for us to note here. And, and again, the irony is thick. He, he's judging those who Jesus has already said they're going to be judged. But notice how he puts on the royal apparel. This is important. This royal apparel we know from historical uh, documents is so sparkly. 
is so laden with silver and gold that Josephus says this about his apparel. When Herod entered at daybreak, Herod says he was clad in a robe made altogether of silver, of quite wonderful weaving, and Josephus goes on to say that the people who saw him were so blinded by his clothes, they said, ah, it's like a god. Doesn't that fit with verse 22, what they're going to say about him? Now, in verse 22, Luke focuses on his voice being like a god. But historically, we also see it's not just his voice. It's the way that he looks. And they're bribing him. They're buttering him up. You're like a god. And Herod loves it. He loves it. He's dressing in such a way that people say, yes, that man knows what he's doing. That guy is important. His royal apparel says that. But then notice the second irony. Not only is he dressed like a god, but he comes on this rostrum. Again, a judgment seat. The one who's about to be judged by God, who is about to be condemned by God, justly, rightly, dares to ascend to a seat to judge another. Did you catch that? The one who deserves to be judged, and one verse later will be judged, dares to ascend to a high spot and look down and judge someone else. He's on a judgment seat. I wonder, have you and I ascended those steps before? Have you and I ascended that judgment seat where we, like everyone else around us, are just as sinful and yet in our prideful arrogance, we ascend up and say, "Woo! look how bad he is. Look at the things that she's done, right? We're on our high horse, thinking that we're higher, we're better, we're godlike. Well, we're going to see in a moment, when I'm going to apply this to all of us, we're just like Herod. Many of us right now, are on that judgment seat, daring to judge others when we deserve to be judged. And that's what's going on here with Herod. The irony is thick here. He thinks so much more highly of himself than he ought. Well, all of Herod's sins now start to culminate for a final culmination in verses 22 and 23. We see he's arrogantly coming before the people, daring to judge those who Jesus has judged. He deserves to be judged. Verse 22, the people, as I've already mentioned, they're going to butter this man up. He's the one who gives them food. They need deliverance from him. So they say the voice of a God and not a man. Now, here's what we have to note. Notice how nowhere in verse 22 or verse 23 does Herod correct them. That's a big deal. What the Bible doesn't say is just as important in this situation as what the Bible does say. Because verse 23 says Herod is going to be judged for not correcting them. Right? He he does not say, thank you guys, I'm glad you, you're digging my clothes, you know, I'm, I'm really happy that you like me, I like you, but I'm not a god, right? That, that would have been the right response, that would have been the godly response to say, I'm not the god, there is a god, let's pursue that god, but instead, he soaks it up. He doesn't deflect the praise to god, he's the sponge who soaks in the praise. He likes it. It sounds good to his ears. 
It's patting him on the back, and that's what he desperately desires. He wants the praise of man upon his heart and his life. And so verse 23 says, because Herod accepted the praise, because he said, yes, more, more, praise me, tell me how good I am, tell me how I'm godlike, immediately, in that very moment, and I think on that judgment seat, in the midst of him soaking up the praise, should be for God, giving to himself, judging the people when he's about to be judged, an angel of the Lord struck him. Notice that. An angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and died. A couple of things for us to notice here. First, let me be very clear. For those of us who are a little skirmish, let me promise you I'm not going to get into the details of what it means that he was killed by worms, okay? I have no interest in that. Don't Google it. (laughs) It's nasty. It's really just gross. I do not like snakes. Worms aren't snakes, but they're kind of similar to snakes, so I'm not having that. I'm not interested in that. But I do want to know what does it mean? You can... Leave the biology, leave the anatomy out. However it happens, fine. It happened. What does it mean? Two things. First, what does it say? How did this come upon him? Notice how Luke, who is a doctor, remember the author writing here is a doctor, does not say that this specifically practically happened to him, that he ate something and then something got inside of him or he walked barefoot and It says, an angel of the Lord. Now, we've already heard that language in chapter 12. How did Peter escape from prison and certain death? An angel of the Lord brought him out. And remember when Peter went to the house church who were praying for his release? Peter didn't say, an angel of the Lord brought me out. He said, hear this, God saved me. God brought me out. Peter's attributing the work of the angel to God himself. Therefore, what we can say here in verse 23 is that the angel of the Lord who takes the life of Herod as condemning and judging him is God himself. This is an act of God. In fact, there's great historical evidence that this idea of being eaten by worms or dying because of worms is actually an act of judgment from God. Uh, we could go into all of, uh, a lot of historical detail for the sake of time. I'm not going to do this, uh, or I'm not going to go into great detail, but in, in AD 311, right before Emperor Constantine ascended the throne and legalized Christianity, making it the official language of the Ro- or the official religion of the Roman Empire, the emperor before him, Emperor Galerius, died by worms, and he was one of the greatest persecutors of the Christian faith. Everyone said he was judged by what he was doing against God. Emperor Constantine came the next year and said, I'm not doing that. He died by worms because he was judged by God. I'm going to do the opposite of that. Christianity is the official religion. Why? Because dying from worms is an understanding that's God's judgment upon somebody who's against God. That's what this is. An angel of the Lord acting for God, judging this man again because he did not give God the glory. 
We could talk about this in great depth, of how we must not boast in ourselves, we must boast in God. There's so many passages we could look at uh, that talks about this. Jeremiah 9.24 says to boast in the Lord rather than ourselves. Uh, Ephesians 2.9 says the same thing. 1 Corinthians 1.31 says the same thing. But listen to what 2 Corinthians chapter, four, or chapter 10 verse 17 says, but he who boasts, boasts in the Lord, not himself. That's Herod's mistake. One of many, admittedly. But he boasted in himself and he received the boasting in himself instead of boasting in the Lord. Well, to close out our text, to get to our second main point, in verse 24 we see that the work of Herod was for naught. He had tried to kill Christianity, right? Tried to put to death the leaders, if, if I kill Peter and if I kill James, surely Christianity is just going to go by the wayside. And yet we see that Tertullian, what the church historian Tertullian said, that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Isn't that what verse 24 says? That even though, yes, Christians died, the church thrived. It multiplied. It continued on. Why? Because the church is not built upon man. The church is built upon God. Amen? That's where we see that no matter what persecution comes about, it's God who is always the engine behind the church, not the people. He uses people, but it's not dependent upon you. It's not dependent upon me. It's dependent upon God. The church continued. And then chapter 12 closes in verse 25 with Barnabas and Saul finishing the mission that they had been tasked with. They had been tasked, if you remember from chapter 11, to give the financial relief from the church at Antioch to the hurting, hungry, uh, poor church at Jerusalem. They bring the money, they give the money, they completed their mission, and then the very last thing told to us in chapter 12 is they included the young man told to us early in chapter 12 named John Mark. He will be an important figure going forward, but at this point, next week we'll talk, or in a couple weeks, we'll talk about the first missionary journey. John Mark's going to be a part of that. Now, I've already hinted, and admittedly even more than hinted already this morning, that I think the most important part of this text is not for us to stand on our high horse and condemn Herod and say, yes, that man got what he deserved, but we've got to get to the second point which is an honest realization that you and I are just as prideful, just as sinful as Herod. Second point is the pride of mankind. Now, let's be honest. There are some significant practical differences between you, me, and Herod, right? A movie named You, Me, and Dupree. You, me, and Herod were different people. We're different people. Herod had a lot of different differences than you and I had. You, I I think I'm speaking pretty confidently here. You've never ascended a literal throne. You've never commanded people to put other people to death. And you've never died by worms, right? I I think I'm pretty accurate in saying that missed everybody here, I think. If not, well, I'd like to meet you. You're the world's most interesting person. But we see that there are some differences, very practical differences. But let's also be extremely honest at the same time. You and I are very similar to Herod. In fact, I would say you and I, especially if you are not in Christ, you are Herod. Now, I know that's a really, really strong statement to say. Let me give you four reasons. So the pride of mankind, that's the second main point. But under that, 
four reasons or four ways that you and I are just like Herod. For sure, if you're an unbeliever, but even if you're a believer, we still have remnants of the former life within us in these four ways. First, you and I are like Herod and the pride of mankind. By first, we seek to run away from our problems and our responsibilities. Just like Herod, you and I seek to run away from our problems and our responsibilities. Herod did this. He left the place that he had failed at. He failed in Judea to cut the head, as it were, off of Christianity by killing off the leaders, so he fled to a place where his failures weren't known. You and I do this in many ways, don't we? You and I, when we fail in certain ways... Instead of dealing with the guilt of our own moral failures, we want to run away to where responsibility does not follow us. I'm not talking about a physical running away. I'm talking about a mental escape. We have guilt on our hands from our own sin. I have committed sins that the guilt is upon me. And so frequently, instead of manning up, as it were, as, as opposed to dealing with the situation, I'm guilty. What do I do with that? I try to sidestep it and go a different way. Yeah, I know my guilt is upon my head. I'm guilty, but yet I'm going to go a different way. How do we do this? Just very quickly. A lot of times we do this by playing the victim right? So it's not my fault, it's the circumstances fault. It's not my fault, it's just my lot in life. It's bad luck. It's that person's fault. It's this fault. You see how we deflect responsibility. That's the pride of sin. That's what Herod did. That's what we do. We play the victim. We don't bear responsibility because you and I are smart people. You and I know if we bear the responsibility for our sinful guilt, then we have to do one of two things. We either reject it and thus reject God, or we take responsibility, we repent, and we're forced to change. And change is scary. Change is terrifying. It's terrifying to realize, wow, I'm not as good a person as I thought. Oh my goodness. I actually am just like Herod. Lord, forgive me. How can I not be Herod any longer? That is hard. It forces you to wrestle with who you are in your innermost being. Superficiality goes by the wayside. What's really at the core of who you are is dealt with. But so often, we don't want to change. We don't want to take responsibility. We don't want to bear the guilt. It's easier to be a victim. It's easier to deflect responsibility and so we run away. Second way, that we're just like Herod and the pride of mankind. Secondly, we think more highly of ourselves than we ought. This is extremely easy to see in our text. In fact, I made a big deal of it as we were going through our verses, but it's important for us to note. Herod reeked, reeked of pride. He reeked of his arrogance, He obviously thought of himself as a god. He wanted someone to die, off with their head. Isn't that what a king does? He wanted something, 
it would be built for him. He wanted someone enslaved, it would happen. He did everything that he wanted because he thought he was all that. But friends, you and I do the same thing even though we don't have the power that this man had. You and I do the same thing that even though we don't put on our royal apparel, even though you and I don't ascend to a judgment seat at home, though maybe your spouse would say otherwise, you and I are just like Herod. We look at ourselves and we say, not too bad. We're like the teenager that can't stop looking at themselves in the mirror, right? right? The, the guy, oh, well, look, coming along nicely. That's how we are in life. We're so enthralled and so proud of us. Look where I've gotten in life. Not too bad. You know, I finally started to make a name for myself. All right. I'm finally able to start buying the things that I would like to buy. Not too bad. Look at all of my accomplishments. I realize we don't talk that way, but we live that way, don't we? We look at ourselves and think pretty highly of ourselves. Let me tell you a little secret. It shouldn't be a secret, but in the way our society lives, it seems like it is. This issue, as you see on the screen behind me in front of you, that we think more highly of ourselves than we ought to, this is 100% the problem with all relationship difficulties, whether it's in marriage, whether it's parent-child, whether it is friendships, whether it's uh, working relationships, whether it's church relationships, every single problem in a relationship boils down to one or oftentimes both parties thinking more highly of themselves than they ought. That's what it boils down to. Let me, let me explain this. Let me give an ex- example of this. A, a husband comes home from work, right, and thinks he deserves something. He deserves a rest. He deserves whatever it might be. Wife doesn't give it to him. What's husband's response? Don't you know what I've done for you? Don't you know how I've done all of these things for you? What's the wife look like? She wants the husband to love her, to be affectionate to her, to be kind to her, to understand her. Husband doesn't do that. What's her response? Don't you know what I've done for us? Bearing children, doing all of these things. You see how the meshing is all because one, and we should say both, thinks more highly of themselves than the other. The child who thinks mom and dad just don't understand. They don't understand me and my needs. The worker who talks about the boss behind their back, he or she, what a joke. I could do better than that because I think more highly of myself. Friends, this is the problem with all of us. And if you're like me, I'm I'm being really honest about this, if you're like me and you see that in yourself, okay, I, I can tell you, my wife and I, Sadie and I, we don't have just perf- a perfect relationship. And a lot of times it's because Jeremiah is not very smart. And Jeremiah is putting himself before the needs of his wife. I see this in myself that I think more highly of myself than I ought. If you're in the same boat and you realize, oh my goodness, I'm guilty of that on the daily basis, what do I do? Paul has an understanding and an explanation for us in Romans chapter 12, verse 3. He says, for through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, 
not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so, to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. You see, the antidote of thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought is to have sound judgment and realize, I'm not as good as I thought. I'm actually a whole lot worse than I think. And yet God still loves me, that he sent his son to die for me, to forgive me of the millions upon trillions of sins that I have committed. How can I not do the same with this person in my life? That's the answer. But yet, we're just like Herod, aren't we? We think more highly of ourselves than we ought. That leads then to a third way that we're just like Herod. We crave praise that's reserved only for the Lord. Again, this is so explicitly in our text, isn't it? We crave praise that's reserved only for the Lord. Herod demonstrated this by, uh, as I said, absorbing the praise about God, that he was God. What rightly should have been up to God, let's listen to the words of God, the Father, Yahweh. He wants people to say, you are God, or Herod, you're the one who's God. You and I do the same thing. And let me tell you how we do this. More often than not, you and I desire praise that should be only reserved for God in a thing that we call the fear of man. You and I, whether it's because we're a perfectionist, that's me, whether it's because we want people to think highly of us, whether it's because we want others to be able to see that we're different, that we're unique, Whatever it might be, the genesis of that is not, I want God to be glorified, I want me to be glorified. So many of us, we have a fear of other people. We don't want to disappoint other people. We don't want people to see us for who we really are. What is that? That's the fear of man. What is the fear of man? It's craving the praise of man that should be rightly only reserved for God. Let me give you a personal antidote or just a, a quick story about this in my life. I've been a very prideful person for a lot of my years. And spoiler alert, until I die, I'm still going to be prideful. Fortunately, it's a part of life. But I noticed my pride when I started preaching. It's kind of a weird thing to say, but let me explain it. When I first understood the call to the ministry, um, I was in college, and I cut my teeth learning how to preach by preaching in every possible place that I could. I preached on Sunday afternoons in nursing homes. I preached on Sunday night services where there was hardly anyone there, only the very best of the best that come on Sunday night. Shout out to those of you who come on Sunday nights, you're the best of the best. And then I, I preached in college to all of these really tiny little country churches all across Missouri. Uh, my college would send us out to preach to these little churches. Most of the time, it'd be for sure 50 or under. Sometimes there was only four, five, ten people. It almost never failed, though. Every little country church that I preached at, there was always something that was the same with all of them. There was always at least one, most of the time, a handful of little old ladies. And these little old ladies all had the same thing in common. After the service, they would come up to me and say the same thing. That was such a wonderful sermon. You're such a nice young man. You're the next young Billy Graham. Maybe they didn't say that, but they always <laughs> praised me. 
I always had the praise. You do so well. Now, as I've reflected back on it now later in life, maybe they just weren't wearing their hearing aids because I remember those sermons. Those were not good sermons. But they always praised me. And I got to a point where I started craving it, right? Every time I preached, I would stand at the back saying, what'd you think? Did you like it? Was it good? Did it strike your fancy? That's what I wanted, the praise of mankind. I'm Herod. I was being Herod. Something then happened a little bit when I got older. Reality hit. I realized that I wasn't as good of a preacher as I thought. I realized that those little old ladies were just overly kind. They weren't actually speaking reality of me being anything exceptional. Instead, all that it was was them trying to encourage me because they understood something that I at the time did not understand, and that is God uses encouragement, but he also uses admonition, and he also uses rebuke. My dear sweet wife, sorry, this is the second time I've mentioned you now, she has heard a lot of my terrible sermons over the years, and she has been one of the greatest gifts of grace to me and telling me, hey, that sermon was wonderful, and at other times, you did your best. <laughs> you tried. Good, good job. I've had people like my dad who have heard my preaching and said, hey, you know, thank you for what you did, but maybe you could change your understanding of this or start to think about it from this perspective or your delivery needs influence in this way. There's books that I've read where I've realized I'm not perfect. Uh, much of my preaching is lacking. There's many times that God has used circumstances to humble me, to help me see, oh my goodness, I'm not what I once thought that I was. You see, God in his grace has humbled me because I had been seeking praise that is only reserved for God. Here's the point with this third truth of how we're like Herod. If pride in your life goes unchecked, it will always lead to destruction. Always. And God in his grace strikes the pride down instead of striking you down. Did you catch that? Pride, if it's left unchecked, always leads to destruction, but God in his grace and mercy to the believer strikes pride down, not you. We're just like Herod. We desire praise when we ought to desire praise for God. Then the fourth truth, and then an application. The fourth truth and how we, you and I, are like Herod, let's be honest, pride blinds us to our sin and its consequences. This is the most applicatory, that is the greatest application that we could talk about this morning. Pride, just like the pride of Herod that's in our lives, blinds us to our sin and thus its consequences. I don't think that Herod saw what was coming. He should have. He should have understood that if he's going to act like this, if he's going to be boastful like this, He's going to have consequences, and yet he missed it all the way to the very end. What about us? Have you ever asked the question, and be honest with yourself, I'll be honest with myself, in your own heart of hearts, have you ever asked the question, how come I keep doing fill-in-the-blank, some activity, some response, something in your life that you know is not right? How come I keep doing this thing? Or how come, maybe we ask ourselves this question, how come I can't seem to stop doing fill-in-the-blank? And it's different for every person, or maybe we have some similarities. But have you ever wondered, why is it 
that whether it's an addiction to a substance, whether it's an addiction to a response, whether it's an addiction to some sort of event or things that we do, we just can't seem to stop. Isn't it strange that on one day somebody can be so committed to something, I'm going to stop doing this, and then the next day, or a week later, or a month later, or months later, we go right back to it, right? What is that within us that fails so often at not doing what we ought to do and not stopping the things that we should? What makes the angry person swear up and down, I'm going to stop being angry, but then gets angry again? What stops the liar who always seems to lie says, I'm not going to lie anymore. I'm going to tell the truth, and yet can't stop lying. Why can't the person addicted to pornography and masturbation stop it and start doing what's right? Why, what is within mankind that we seem to not be able to stop doing the things that we ought not to do and start doing the things that we ought to do? What's the answer? The answer, my friends, is that pride is extremely good at blinding us. Let me say that again. Pride is extremely good. It's better than you and I are. It's smarter than you and I are. It's extremely good at blinding us to reality. You and I so often are so drowned in the, issue, the issues and the situations of this world that we can't see reality for what it is. You remember in the song, I once was blind, but now I see. What on earth was he talking about when he said that he was blind? Blind to what? What does the gospel remove the blindfold? From what? From the reality that you and I can't stop sinning on our own. Do you catch that? The reality of life, friend, is that you and I are not strong enough to stop sinning on our own. You and I can't stop the addiction. You and I can't stop the natural response. You and I can't stop the habits, and we cannot change our flesh of sin that's dead into a heart of life in Jesus Christ. We can't do that. We look at Romans 3.10 and think that it doesn't apply to us, which says there is none who are righteous, not even one. We say, surely that doesn't apply to me. Surely, if only I try a little harder, I'll be able to stop this sin. Surely, if I just do enough good things, it will outweigh the bad things. Surely, if I can do something, then my guilt will go away. Sadie and I recently watched a movie of men going through the jungle and one of them fell into quicksand, right? Know what quicksand is? I don't understand the science behind it, but it seems like it's water along with sand and some other stuff that when you get in it, you can't get out, right? That's the whole thing. But notice about the quicksand. The more you struggle, the more you sink, right? It's not the more you work at it, then you'll get out, If you struggle more, you're going down. You're sinking. You're dying. Never to return again. Unless, hear this, unless someone saves you. Here's a branch. 
Pull it out. Come on. You can do it. You see, what sin does, what pride does, is it blinds us when we're in the quicksand of our sin and of life. Pride says, you're fine. Just try a little bit harder. You can do it. Just keep trying a little bit harder. And every time we try harder, do we get closer to getting out? We go further, deeper and deeper into it. The only hope, friends, is not to try harder. The only hope is to see the one who was the Lamb of God who reaches in and says, take my hand. I'm pulling you out. Let me end with this final application. When we talk about pride and the pride of man, the pride of life, I think it's important that we just get really honest this morning. Let's just get really, really honest with ourselves. If you and I are just like Herod, if you're a Christian and if you're not a Christian, we all have pride in our lives, then let's ask ourselves an honest question. What is pride blinding you and me to today? What is pride blinding us to today? Some of us are in here. Let me just specifically apply this in two directions. Some of us are in here and we don't know Christ, but we think we do. Some of you admittedly know you're not in Christ. That's wonderful that you have that understanding. But some of us are in here and we think we know Christ. And yet, the pride of our life is we think that we're good with God. Because we look back to a prayer at a certain point in time. We look back to a conversation we had with a pastor, Sunday school teacher, or parent at a certain amount in time. We look back to walking an aisle. We look back to something that happened during an emotional day or week at a camp or a school or something, and we think that's enough to make us right with God. Never mind the fact that X amount of years later, we're living how we want to, right? Once saved, always saved. Yes. Got that get-out-of-jail-free card. I'm going to check that in, cash that in at Judgment Day. That's not how it works. Yes, once saved, always saved, but saved to be like Christ. And if your life bears no semblance of Christ, that pride has blinded you. You have the blindfold on that you don't hate sin. You love it. You relish it. You pursue it. You are consumed by it. You are not free in Christ. You're a slave to sin and the devil. Friends, here's the beautiful certainty about Christ. There is freedom for you today. That blindfold that's still on your eyes of pride, of sin, of anger, of hatred against God, of trying to be like God, of trying to be God and take the praise of God, it can be removed, but not by struggling in quicksand, by saying, I need you, Jesus. If you don't save me, I will die. I will never come back. Friends, if that's you here this morning, take the branch of Christ, dripped with his saving blood that washes away your sins. Repent and live for Christ. But the other side, last last thing to say, some of us are here, many of us are here. We're in Christ. We have been saved. Jesus is our Lord and Savior. We love him. And yet, we struggle with the flesh. The blindfold is off, but sometimes we try to put it back on. 
we have been pulled out of the quicksand and we do this. How did it feel to be in there? Try to dip our toe back in. Not realizing that if we keep going, and if we keep going, yes, we're in Christ, but we're going to get sucked into a place that is not right. Friends, the hope for us today, if you're like me and can struggle with the pride that we see in Herod, but see in our own life, the only hope is it's not about us, it's about him. It's not about what does Jeremiah want, it's what does God call Jeremiah to do. It's not about what makes you happy today, it's what is God doing for all of eternity in your life. Friends, wherever you are this morning, God's goodness and grace to you is he's given you time. You have this moment. So in this moment, commit yourself to change. If you're in Christ, grow in sanctification. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart. Seek him daily. Love his word. May it be a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. Love the Lord who has saved you. And if you don't know Christ, oh friends, you have right now. I can't tell you about tomorrow or even tonight, but I can tell you right now there's hope. Come to Jesus. Get out of that quicksand. Love him and have eternal life all because of what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. Let's pray. Father, I realize my own inabilities to say what needs to be said this morning. The frustration that I carry home every Sunday afternoon is that more could have and should have been said, and yet and my inabilities failed to do so. Lord, will you preach a better sermon right now in the hearts and the minds of each of us here, myself, and all of us who are gathered here today, so that when we go home, The word on our mind is change. Change to be like Christ. Lord, will you help us to identify what pride is blindfolding us to right now? Will you help us to find joy and and purpose in you and you alone? And Lord, may you work in each one of us so that we, when we come to the end of our days, might say our life is solely about Jesus Christ because eternity is solely about Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you can show us what not to be and to follow Jesus of what we should be. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us. In your name, amen.